welcome to From the Frontline. I'm Hunter Combs in the studio with Dr. Hammond. Is your church a house of prayer for all nations? Now tonight we're going to be looking at Jesus in Mark 11 as he goes in to cleanse the temple and he says this um, as he's going in. He says, my house, he says, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? So Dr. Hammond, as we come tonight, let's uh, open up the scriptures and let's see what's what God has to say to us through the gospel of Mark. Well, this is a powerful passage. You know, it's it's actually quite shocking for many as well that the Lord would come into the temple, make mm. a whip, chase money changers out of it, mm. overturn tables, uh, doubtless causing quite a lot of chaos there, setting free the doves and the animals that are there for sacrifices, spilling the ill-gotten gains of these money changers mm. on the ground. You could just imagine the scramble and the, the chaos going on. And you wonder why they didn't stop him because, you know, whenever there's money and there's corruption, there are bouncers. There's um, mm. these big muscular people who tend to be there to break your arms or whatever if you get in the way. <laughs> and you get the impression that they must have been running to get out of the way of his whip and probably those fiery eyes blazing with indignation, with zeal for God's house. So Mm. this is not the average picture that many Christians have of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's Mm. not particularly mild here, and he's not being particularly gentle. But this is God's house, and zeal for God's house is consuming him. And here the Lord says, my house is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Mm. And There was a lot of corruption going on in there, and the temple had been polluted, been profaned. And this was particularly in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court Mm. of the Gentiles was the one place that people outside of the nation of Israel could gather for prayer, which was meant to be a house of prayer for nations. And they turned that outer court into a marketplace. Mm. So any God-fearing Gentiles, and we know there were many, They had no place of quiet reflection and prayer Mm. to come to. They had a place that was not just noisy and distracted, but actually it was a place of corruption. Because Mm. remember, the temple was a place of sacrifice. The temple was very much the foreshadowing of Christ, Christ's Mm. fulfillment. And so Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But back then, the shadow was people were bringing a spotless lamb. Mm. Now, they apparently had Temple Bureau of Standards priest standing at the door saying, your sheep does not meet a Temple Bureau of Standards requirements. You've got to buy a Temple Bureau of Standards mm. approved sheep here. So oh, lots you, of corruption. And, you, oh, you can't use your normal shekels out here. Mm. Uh, those are worldly ones. You need to change them for the sanctified temple shekels. Mm. And doubtless, there was unjust weights and measures and sure. an exchange rate. Much like a bank's today, you lose on a deal and there's a heavy percentage going Mm. to them. And the Bible is full of condemnation of unjust weights and measures and cheating Mm. and usury. There's a lot of condemnations. Uh, One economist friend of ours, Stephen Mitford Goodson, said that there's 60 pastures in the Bible condemning usury, unjust Mm. weights and measures in uh, changing of currency. And uh, from all the accounts, there was a lot of corruption going on. And our Lord Jesus tackles it directly. And you could just imagine, here the Lord comes into the temple, and it's not what you'd expect. He takes Hmm. a whip. He chases out the ungodly. He releases the animals that were Hmm. being sold there. He overturns the tables, doubtless the currency spilling all over the floor and people scrambling to get it. And uh, You can imagine a pandemonium, and nobody actually physically stops him, which indicates he couldn't have been this weedy, character often Hmm. depicted in Renaissance art with delicate surgeon's (laughs) fingers, 
let's face our Lord, was a carpenter on earth. Mm. And carpenters back then could not just go and order their wood from Timber City to be delivered mm. in nice plywood. They had to do it themselves, yeah. We had to walk out there yeah. in Middle East heat. And mm. we know something about heat. We were just hiking <laughs> last week in, in pretty serious heat up Table Mountain, but nothing like the Middle East heat. Mm. And, and then he had to chop down trees and carry them. Remember, we're not talking about chainsaws. We're not talking about mm. pickup trucks. We Doing it all by hand, manual labor. It's hard to imagine that any carpenter in first century Middle East could possibly have been anything other than physically fit, hmm. tough. In fact, just looking at the terrain our Lord covered and the distances he walked, you get the impression he was physically strong and fit, so much so that Pontius Pilate was surprised when he heard that he was still alive after all the flogging and hmm. the hideous crucifixion process that he was still alive, which just shows the Lord was physically strong, but to the point that he could walk through a crowd that was intent mm. to kill him when they want to throw him over the cliff. And as we read in Luke 4, but now here mm. we have, he goes into the temple, has a lot of corruption going on, and it must have been a lot of people in whose interest it was to stop him. Mm. But they didn't dare. Yeah. And there's also, he's gaining a gathering and a following as well. The people are sort of turning after Jesus. They like what he's preaching. They like what he's saying. So there's a lot of sort of interchange between the religious leaders and then Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. And so there's this really power struggle, if you will, between Jesus saying, no, the rightful leaders, they're corrupt, they're fruitless. And actually, right before this cleansing of the temple passage, there's this story of Jesus. Well, first, he triumphantly enters Jerusalem and the people are crying, Hosanna to di or Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is kind of, in a way, a new King David coming. They're saying, uh, blessed is the one coming, uh, sorry, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So it's in many ways kind of like King David when he defeated Goliath. All the women were saying, oh, Saul has slayed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. So in a, in a sense, Jesus is now coming and the people are praising him and the religious leaders are saying, oh, this guy's a threat. He's coming to sort of take over our place. And then what happens right after that? It says Jesus curses a fig tree, which is interesting. But I think the parallel is that Israel... And the Old Testament is referred to as a fig tree, as we see in Jeremiah 8 uh, and other passages in Hosea 9 and uh, other Old Testament passages. You see Israel depicted as a fig tree and he's cursing this fig tree. And now Israel is sort of this fruitless fig tree that no longer is bearing the fruit that God has called it to bear. And then he goes into the temple and drives out the money changers. It's saying... Look, Jesus is coming. He's sort of coming up against the leaders. He's now saying, the my people, the fig tree or the vine that was meant to produce fruit, they're no longer producing fruit. And then he goes in and cleanses this fruitless temple, if you will. Um, so it's quite interesting how it all fits into the context there of Mark 11. It really does. And you go into Mark 12, where you get the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Mm. And there again, you get a really emphasized that here the people who've been given the, the vineyard of the king to care for, they've beaten his servants, they've thrown them out, they've killed him. And even the son, the heir, when he comes and says, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Mm. And it says that they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. The Pharisees and the scribes, mm. the chief priests, they knew, verse 12 of mm. chapter 12. And so the Lord is saying to them, uh, you, 
have killed the prophets. You are planning to kill the Messiah himself. Mm. And so verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dresses and mm. give that vineyard to others. Have you not heard the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so uh, the fulfillment of this was AD 70 when Jerusalem hmm. and the temple were destroyed, yeah. of course, in a very physical way. So this is, this is the context. But bear in mind, in the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Hmm. But in the new covenant, God has a people for his temple. Hmm. Because we read in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 uh, on to verse 20, that in fact, as God's people, we are now the temple of mm. the Holy Spirit. And uh, this this is something that is uh, a real uh, important application for us because mm. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so to think of ourselves, of our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, mm. uh, I mean, this is actually quite awesome because here we are reading in, Math in Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, actually, every one of the four Gospels deals with the cleansing of the temple and emphasizes it in different ways. But here we've got, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've turned to den of thieves. Now, the Lord cleanses the temple by taking a whip. So you get the profaning of the temple, the polluting of the temple, you get the purging of the temple, and it reminds us of the purpose of the temple. And this should be an application for us too. Mm. Obviously, we can apply this to our church. Is our church a house of prayer for nations? Are we keeping prayer and intercession, missions, worship, primary? But it's also to be applied to ourselves personally. Mm. If the Lord was to come into my heart and life, what would he whip out? Hmm. Yeah, what is God calling us to cleanse from our lives? And isn't that the entirety of the Christian life? I think, isn't it Luther in his 95 Theses, the very first one says the entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance. So it's not as if we arrive and, oh, wow, now I'm, I've accepted Jesus. Now I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I've repented once and now we'll just go on from here. No, it's this continual daily trying to cleanse our heart of sin. It is quite awesome and also terrifying thinking about this whole temple. I mean, you look about, look how God dwelt in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, came down upon Mount Sinai in fire and cloud and thunder and lightning. I mean, it's terrifying. And then he comes to dwell in the tabernacle. And then he dwells in the temple built by Solomon. And then the temple's destroyed. The people are waiting. When is God coming back? When is God coming to restore the temple? Well, Jesus comes. It's actually Jesus is the temple, as Mark, or sorry, as John 2 tells us. So Jesus comes. He is the temple of God, as the Apostle John says. And as he ascends to heaven, he sends the Spirit who now indwells his people. We are his temple. So that very same God who came down on Mount Sinai and clouds and thunder and lightning, he's now living within us, yeah. which is both humbling and amazing, and wow, that God would love us in such a way, that's, that's incredible. But also, it should, uh, I mean, it should both inspire us by the love of God for us, but also, in sort of, as Paul says in Philippians, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it, it should really <laughs> cause us to think not, oh, God, Jesus is living in my heart, I have the Holy Spirit. Wow, you have the Spirit of God living within you, the same one who came down upon, upon Mount Sinai. It should really be cause for reflection. 
and fear. I mean, yeah. quite right. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because bear in mind with the tabernacle, we had the sons of the high priest, Aaron himself, Aaron, the brother of Moses. Aaron's sons were struck dead mm. for bringing false fire. Mm. In some way, they dishonored the tabernacle. They did not show the fear of God required. They did not mm. carry out their office correctly to such an extent that God commanded Aaron. I mean, imagine he commanded Aaron not to mourn the deaths of his sons who he struck dead mm. for their lack of reverence for God. That's how seriously God took it there. And this isn't just Old Testament. Mm. We come to Book of Acts and Acts mm. chapter 5 and we get Ananias and Sapphira yeah. who light the Holy Spirit, something which to be honest, we don't generally think of lies as that serious because mm. we tolerate some pretty serious exaggerations, mm. even in pulpits and testimonies and so on. And next thing you know, God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead. You have mm. not lied to man. You've lied, lied to, to God. God you've yeah. lied to the Holy Spirit. And uh, that should just remind us, praise God, he's merciful and he doesn't do this every mm. time. But but he's showing us this is serious. Yeah. You treat the temple of God seriously. You treat the tabernacle of God seriously. You treat the worship of God seriously. And this is also your testimony mm. must be serious. So that Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of false testimony. They lied. Mm. And, and here... We are told you're the temple of God. Now, this, this should put some real fear hmm. in a reverent, godly, healthy fear hmm. of the one true God, the creator, the eternal judge, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one before whom we must stand at the last day and give an account of our lives. I think it's just an awesome, terrifying thing because if some people think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus could visit our church? Well, <laughs> well, yeah. bear in mind what he did when he visited the temple yeah. and if we think of God only as love without mm. balancing him out as light, yeah. if we think of him as savior without balancing out with Lord mm. and judge as well, we've got to preach both the goodness of God and the severity of God. They both are, we, we dare not be selective in the sense of editing God to fit our modern mm. sensibility. So, you know, have a nice tame God. In mm. fact, as C.S. Lewis well put in his Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is not a tame lion, mm. and, and our God will not be tamed by us. He is an awesome fire, consuming mm. fire. Mm. And I think it's important for us to understand the seriousness of the holiness of God, the glory of God, as we really consider this. And I mean, we're, you're talking about the Exodus and uh, people offering, was it the strange fire, the sons of Aaron? And you have at the end of Exodus, uh, after the building of the tabernacle, uh, it says, then the cloud, this is the very last part of Exodus, and the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses himself, the one mediating between Israel and Yahweh, can't enter the tabernacle. Why? Because he's also sinful. He can't enter the presence of God. Then you get the answer to it, Leviticus. But there must be a sacrifice for sin. Thank God we have a sacrifice for sin, a perfect sacrifice, as Hebrews says, a once-for-all sacrifice. And now, as that passage you read in Corinthians 6, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We shouldn't take lightly of the blood of Christ shed for us, that God can dwell within us. Thankfully, our sins are cleansed, even as we have continual struggles with sin in our life day after day. 
thank God that we were bought with a price, that we were bought with the precious blood of Christ. So that there's a call now, not just sit back, watch some more TV, enjoy life. No, it's glorify God in your body. And this context is talking about sexual purity in the body of Christ. But now, as we come to this Mark 11 passage, he's telling the Israelites there to make the temple a house of prayer for the nation. So in what way does this sort of apply to us as we think about making our not only our churches, but also our very own lives, that we would be a house of prayer for the nations. Yes, this this is so important. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Mm. What is our highest priority? Well, our highest priority is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Well, what is the highest priority Mm. in a Christian. Well, the Great Commission should be our supreme ambition. Mm. The last command of Christ should be our first concern. Here, at the end of every one of the Gospels, in the beginning of Acts, Mm. the Great Commission of our Lord Jesus Christ is re-emphasized again and again. Preach the Gospel to every creature. Mm. Make disciples of every nation. Teach obedience to all things that I've commanded. Mm. This message of repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations beginning Mm. in Jerusalem. As the Father sent me, so send are you. Mm. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of earth. Mm. And so the emphasis of the Great Commission is so important. This is our purpose. And so this is our chief end, to worship God and to enjoy him forever. But, of course, God is so great Mm. that he deserves more than my worship because Mm. he's the creator of all and he is the judge of all. And therefore, it is not acceptable that anyone on this planet is not worshiping God. So that missions has to exist because not everyone is worshiping God and giving Mm. him the true glory and honor that he deserves. Therefore, our priority as the church is to be a house of prayer for all nations. We have our priority of worship and prayer with intercession for the nations as a major emphasis because the Great Commission has been given to us. And it Mm. starts by praying. But prayer can never be a substitute for obedience and action. Prayer Mm. is the preparation, the foundation for action. So it is not a matter of, well, you can pray for the persecuted church, you can pray for missions, you can pray for the unreached and resistant areas, but you don't have to actually do something. No. Mm. Uh, In fact, the very disciples, when the Lord said, the harvest is large, the workers of you, pray for the Lord the harvest to thrust out laborers in the harvest fields. And they did pray. And they were the first answers to (laughs) those prayers. Now go. (laughs) They were the ones who had to put feet to their faith, yes. And it's dangerous to pray, actually. Mm. Um, Our mission grew out of praying through Operation World, Patrick Mm. Johnson's intercessory handbook for the nations. And as I started praying for our immediate neighbor, Mozambique, well, God laid Mozambique Mm. on my heart, and that became my first mission field. Not one Bible for a thousand Christians. No missionaries allowed in the country. Mm. Completely closed. Nobody under 18 allowed in church. No baptism of anyone Mm. under 18. And as I looked at the needs, not even 4% of Mozambique would claim to be Protestants or evangelicals at all. And Well, praise God, now it's 34%, but that's 40 years later. Mm. What a transformation we've seen in Mozambique, which is now wide open to gospel. Back then, it was the killing fields. It was was a place of horror and and totally closed the gospel. But but prayer is the beginning. But prayer is there to mobilize God's people. So my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the Great Mm. Commission, our missionary purpose, the last command of Christ is right in there. So I I think as we think of how the, the temple in Jerusalem was profaned and purged, which reminds us of the purpose of the temple. The temple is to be a place of prayer, mm. a place of power, 
a place of praise, a place of proclamation of the word of God for the blessing of the nations. Just as God blessed Abraham and his seed hmm. to be a blessing to all the families of the nations. This is a continual theme throughout the scripture. So again, I think it should just remind us, is my church a house of prayer for nations? Are we prayerful? Are we missions-minded? Are we blessing the nations? Am I hmm. a place of prayer? If people look at me as a Christian, are there things in my life that they can give hmm. thanks to God for? Because the temple is meant to be for the praise of God. And now we hear in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, 20, that we, God's people, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, hmm. uh, that we might glorify God. And, and this, this is a very intimidating thought that... Uh, Hmm. Actually, we've got to live in such a way that we bring glory to God. Hmm. And it's interesting when you look at the passage that Jesus is quoting from when he says this in Mark 11, that my house shall be a house of, called a house of prayer for all nations. It's actually a quote, quotation. He said, is it not written? Well, where is it written? Actually, in Isaiah 56. And this is coming in context after the exile. He's, Isaiah's uh, prophesying that the exile is coming where his people, Israel, is going to be punished for their sins. They're going to be sent out into Assyria. The Assyrians are going to come and bring them as exiles. And then in the latter half of Isaiah, he's prophesying that there's coming a day where exile is going to be over, that he's going to bring his people back. In Isaiah 56, it talks about the salvation not only of Israel, but of the foreigners. Foreigners actually join to the Lord. And it says in Isaiah 56 verse 6, and it says, The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Uh, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And this is what Jesus quotes from, is that God's not only restoring Israel, going to bring Israel back from exile, but he's actually going to, with them, bring in all nations to himself. And as you quoted, missions exist because worship doesn't. Uh, that's from John Piper. He talks about missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. He says, when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And so the reason that we do missions is because the nations aren't worshiping God. God is not being glorified in the 1040 window as he ought to be. God is not being glorified in many people's mm -hmm. lives. And so it's about the worship of God. It's not about, oh, well, we got more people saved and more people are joining our organization or our church and we plant. It's about the worship of God, which will be forever. So I think it's really important that we think about that as we think about our churches, our lives being sort of engulfed in um, being uh, identified as being about prayer. Our churches, our families should be houses of prayer for the nations. Indeed. In fact, also in Isaiah 46, we see this condemnation that the watchmen are blind, ignorant, mm. dumb dogs who cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. And uh, I mean, that, that's a pretty mm. horrible picture, but it's of, of those who failing uh, to, it's, it's a condemnation of Israel's irresponsible leaders who are not being the watchmen they should be, who are not being the guides. They're not even, you know, as John Calvin lecturing on this very passage uh, said that um, uh, even a dog will bark when they perceive a threat to their owner. 
but a minister who cannot preach against sin hmm. is worth less than a barkless dog. Hmm. Uh, sure. that, that's one of John Calvin's <laughs> commentaries on Isaiah. And uh, may we not be barkless dogs. Hmm. Um, we should be able to speak out and to think at this time we've had so many churches shut down, hmm. silenced, and sidelined from the fulfilling of the Great Commission and of our mandate to worship God and to be a house of prayerful nations. And that's not acceptable. It doesn't matter what the excuse, it doesn't matter how insistent the media or the peer pressure, hmm. we've got a higher calling. Our calling is to glorify God, to worship him forever, to honor him, to obey his commands, to fulfill his great commission. And so I think this passage here, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, should be a clarion call at the beginning of 2022. What is our church's main focus? What is my main focus? Uh, are we a house of prayer for all nations? Do we have a missionary vision? How serious are we in prayer? The prayer meeting used to be a central focus of the church throughout the centuries. And hmm. these days it's been somewhat sidelined, some places almost abandoned. Hmm. Which is really sad. And I think you've said on many times, you can tell how truly, I guess, pure churches by looking at the prayer meeting of the church. Actually, that that's a quote from uh, a good friend in Eastern mm. Europe, uh, Dr. Paul Negrut mm. uh, of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Aradia in Romania. Uh, back in 1989, the Berlin Wall was still up, the Iron Curtain mm. was still in place. Um, it was just after marrying Lenora, we joined her parents in Bible smuggling behind Iron Curtain, and we went into Romania, and it was Easter 1989, and Ceausescu was still a dictator. There's still a lot of terror, a lot of imprisonment and oppression of Christians in Eastern Europe. And we had to be very surreptitious even in a lot of the work that was done, especially the leadership training. Uh, they only allowed four ministers to be trained every four years hmm. in the Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, yet there were over 1,200 churches. And there was hundreds of churches without any pastors. But hmm. they, they were limited. So we had illegal School of the Prophets, they call it, uh, <laughs> after hours Bible training for ministers for the gospel, which is completely illegal in Romania at that time. Well, uh, Paul Negrut uh, said to me uh, that um, uh, I need to be careful because there'll be spies in every service, uh, in the Sunday service, and I've got to be careful how I preach. And so I said to him, how can you tell who the spies are? He said, oh, it's, it's easy. He said, you can always tell who a, new Christ a real Christian is. Mm -hmm. A real Christian loves God. A real Christian loves to study the Bible. A real Christian loves to pray. And a real Christian hates sin. Hmm. I said, wow, that's so simple, but I'm afraid many of our church in the West <laughs> have lost that idea. He says, we don't count our members by who attend the Sunday morning service. We count our members by who attends the prayer meeting in the midweek. Hmm. And that's an interesting thought. And I immediately thought, you know, we've got some colossally big churches in Cape Town who have very small prayer meetings. Hmm. And uh, it would be a bit embarrassing if some of these mega churches were to count their real members by oh, how many attend the midweek <laughs> prayer meeting because that would be awfully discouraging. Hmm. But uh, that's the way the Eastern Europeans saw it. And I thought that's so true. Your Sunday morning service isn't the real measure of your membership. It's the size of the midweek prayer meeting. Hmm. And that's really, I mean, so many of us get so busy in the Western world. We have so many things to do and it's, oh, I don't have time for this midweek prayer. But prayer is really at the heart of everything we do. It's the foundation of everything we do. Why? Because God is sovereign and God is sovereignly ordained to accomplish his glorious end of bringing all nations to himself through the prayers of his people. God actually commands us to pray and ordains that we pray. And if we don't pray, uh, 
things won't happen actually because mm-hmm. we're actually walking in disobedience against God. It's quite fascinating when you think of the story of Moses interceding for Israel. Uh, they build the golden calf and God comes down and he says that he's going to destroy Israel and he's going to take Moses and recreate his nation. He said he's going to do that. Surely God is being truthful. He's actually going to destroy Israel. And then Moses prays. Moses intercedes and says no. And he reminds God of the covenant. And it says the Lord relented. And so the prayer of Moses actually changed the entire course of redemptive history. Now, as people who believe in the sovereignty of God, we'd say, well, God ordained that Moses would pray and therefore he would save his people. But truly, his prayer had a huge impact on the nation of Israel, whether God would completely destroy the entire nation of Israel. But Moses pleads with God, no, what are the nations going to say if that you just brought your people out here to destroy them in the wilderness? Remember your covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God relents. Why? Mm. Because of the prayer of one man taking a step of obedience and interceding for his people. And how much more should we realize that, wow, God has sovereignly ordained to accomplish his glorious end on earth of bringing the nations to himself through the prayers of his people. How important it is that we pray. Not, oh, it's a nice thing if we pray. Mm. No, we must pray so that the nations will be brought in. Yes, and it's all part of the Reformation principle of soli Deo Gloria, solely mm. for the glory of God, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name alone be all praise and glory and honor. And so it is it is vital for us uh, to be able to uh, see that, as the Scripture makes clear, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, therefore, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Mm. And Psalm 115, verse 1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. And that's written on every one rand coin in South Africa. Hmm. Just a reminder of an old Reformation battle cry, Solidia Gloria, is written on the one rand coins. And it's so important to remind ourselves that we exist for the glory of God. And it's so important to pray. It's not only a privilege to pray, but it reminds us that all good fruit comes from God's gracious answers to our weak and inadequate prayers. So if we don't have that attitude, I mean, bear in mind that the whole principle is the workers labor in vain. Uh, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And so as we are seeking to seek first the kingdom of God, to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. It's important that what we are doing, we're doing on the basis of the grace of God, depending on the grace of God alone. Scripture alone is our authority. Christ alone is the head of the church. He's the only mediator between God and man. He's the only Savior, and he's the way, the truth, and life. When we get the five solas right, Scripture alone, grace alone, received by faith alone, Christ alone is the head of the church, everything is done to the glory of God alone. That's what makes prayer powerful. It's not depending on my prayers. It's mm. it's trusting in God's answers, which are always much, much, much better than our prayers, mm. which are often inadequate. And I love the principle that Martin Luther gave us that we should seek to pray the Psalms, pray mm. the scriptures. Uh, and he showed how you should be praying through the Lord's Prayer and praying through the Apostles' Creed and praying through the Ten Commands and praying through the scriptures and praying through the Psalms. And as Martin Luther said, if you're Devotional life needs to get uh, started. Just open the Bible in the middle, turn to the Psalms, begin to make the Psalms your own prayers. Pray the Psalms. And the Psalms, you get everything hmm. from grief and guilt and shame and anger and fear and pain 
and mm. thankfulness, and it's it's all there. Mm. Um, everything we go through in our lives is, is depicted somewhere in 150 Psalms. Uh, and David has described the man after God's own heart. And mm. to be able to share in his prayers and to pray these scriptures, I think that directs and energizes and refines our prayer life. And if we prayed better, we would live better. Mm. And a, a prayerful church is a powerful church, mm. but a prayerless church is a powerless church. Mm. And what an amazing opportunity it is to actually go through the Psalms and pray the Psalms. The book of Psalms is quite fascinating because it's actually the one book of the Bible that's directed to not a person because you look at every other book of the Bible, it's Paul writing to the Corinthians or Paul writing to the Ephesians or Jeremiah having a prophecy against Israel. It's all directed to sort of a human audience we learn, but the book of Psalms, its audience is God. It's the one book directed directly to God. Uh, so I think it's a, a really mm. powerful place to turn to in the Bible that we read and we, we pray through the Psalms as we think about this. So what are some applications as we think of things we can be praying for um, as people who desire to pray for what for God's kingdom to come on earth? Mm. Um, what are some sort of prayer points you think would well, be helpful for people? Well, our Lord Jesus gives us some key prayer points. He commands us in John 4, look at the fields, hmm. which are ripe into harvest. Hmm. And he commands us to pray to the Lord the harvest, to thrust out laborers into his harvest hmm. field. So we command to look at the harvest fields. We command to pray for workers. And we are also to put feet to our faith and uh, hmm. be some of the answers to own prayers as well by getting out there. Uh, that's part of it. The harvest is large. The workers are few. If, if you want guidance in intercession for the nations, you cannot do better than to get hold of Operation World, which also has a website opworld.org, uh, Operation World, which Patrick Johnson launched many years ago, and uh, he has given us an intercessory handbook on chapters in every country in the world, and it'll stagger mm. you how much God is doing all over the world. And, and in these chapters, you not only learn something of the history and some of the um, needs and even the political and military and spiritual situation of countries, but you you learn of answers to prayer, spectacular answers to prayer in many cases, and mm. also great needs for prayer still in the future, and who's doing what, where, and and why, and how, and what still needs to be done, including Bible translation, so on. So, mm. um, you know, for example, if, if you've got some family connection, say your family originally came from Denmark or something, or Norway, well, turn to Operation World, what does it say about these countries mm. and uh, you know if, if uh, you've got a member of your church who's a missionary out in Thailand okay well let's see what Operation World says about Thailand mm. and learn more about it so you can pray more intelligently for that country and its people if you've got a neighbor who comes from Eritrea uh, learn about it there you can pray more wisely and then you can ask questions that are more pertinent the person will be amazed that you actually know something about my country mm. you know most people <laughs> can't even find it on a map yeah. uh, so Operation World's a great start. Uh, to learn about the countries and to pray for the... Uh, I've, I've had different people say, instead of just going through a routine, get a prayer book, get a notebook, get a journal, put people in your prayer book uh, and, and maybe some countries as projects. And uh, also some people decide to have, well, each day of the week you've got different focus. And maybe there's one day of the week where, where the focus is praying for an unreached uh, nation, people group and so on. Uh, also, I've heard of some people say, when I'm a traffic light, instead of just revving my engine, getting irritated, <laughs> I pray for someone, you know, mm. maybe a missionary, um, so on. And also people's um, uh, prayer over a meal. 
not just to thank God for our food, but um, what about thinking of a particular country or people group as part of, of one's family prayer? So there's a lot of ways we can revive our prayer lives and focus it and also make it more informed. So get on a mailing list of different missions, uh, get the prayer letters of different missionaries, uh, be pen pals with people in different countries uh, where we can have an impact. And of course, all around us, we've probably got people in our neighborhood who even come from some of these unreached countries. Hmm. And maybe you could share with our listeners, um, our friends who have from Doctors for Life who've just completed a mission to the Nuba Mountains. Yes, this is wonderful. Nuba Mountains has had a very special place in our missions heart for many years. Uh, 25 years ago, we first started going to the Nuba Mountains back in 1997. Uh, so uh, we've had a long-standing relationship with, with the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. And uh, over the years, we've taken hundreds of thousands of Bibles and Christian books into Nuba Mountains. And I've conducted hundreds of meetings there. And you have too, and John and uh, Daniel, and praise God for the great work that's been done in Nuba Mountains. But in the last couple of years, our good friends of Doctors for Life have been going up there to the one hospital in the Nuba Mountains and setting up an eye clinic and taking eye surgery equipment and doing actual eye surgeries, literally helping people who are virtually blind to see, and cataract surgeries and all sorts of things like that. Uh, so that they've done hundreds of surgeries last year and this year in the Nuba Mountains as part of a short-term mission, partly to help the people directly, but also to train a local man uh, in eye surgery, and they've left equipment, everything needed. Uh, and there's so many hundreds and hundreds of people who've got cataracts and, and they, they're virtually blind. Some people arrive literally with sticks and people mm. guiding them and are able to walk away uh, seeing well and glasses are donated. Mm. We also donated audio Bibles mm. uh, for the people who've got, of course, sight problems or illiterate and uh, digital libraries. So um, our friends from Doctors Life have just completed this wonderful mission up there. Mm. Keep praying for the hospital in the Noob Mountains, the medical people are there, they're always understaffed. They really appreciate visitors. Mm. And uh, for short-term missions like Doctors for Life have gone in, and they've done this in Angola, Mozambique, many places, but we praise God for what they've just been doing in the mountains. Mm. So there's prayer. I mean, the entire world needs prayer, really, if you think about it. The unreached nations, the 1040 window, but we also look at our own countries and we see these once strong Christian nations are in some ways just collapsing. And there's this spiritual and moral decay, even within our seminaries, within our Bible colleges, within many church denominations. LBGTQ is now in certain denominations, people in the pulp. And so when you look out at the world, there's no end of prayer needs everywhere, both for missions globally, but also back home at the mission sending bases for that we would be purified people for the kingdom of God. And even that's been a bit of sort of your testimony too, how you've shifted in many ways think, thinking about, well, we, we've been doing these missions into the field, but we've also want to be sure that South Africa is a nation that fears God, that is walking according to his commandments. What are the churches here? Are they, are they living in reformation, continually being revived again and again? And so there's not only a need for missions to go out, but also for us to pray too for our churches that we would be mission sending bases as we go forward from here. Yes, the light that shines the furthest should shine brightest at home. And we should never neglect the missionary sending bases, which in many cases are being undermined. And I've been a missionary to restricted access areas and persecuted Christians for almost 40 years. This April 2022 will mark 40 years since our first cross-border mission. And uh, 
over the years, I got more and more concerned coming back to see South Africa, which was the greatest missionary sending country in Africa. Still is to a large extent in terms of numbers, but I could see it getting undermined. A country that used to have every school open Bible reading and prayer and where um, pornography and blasphemy were legal and mm -hmm. Sunday uh, laws, uh, Sabbath protection laws protected uh, churches on Sunday so all shops were closed on Sunday, no cinemas open, Sundays were uh, for the Lord's work only. And I've just seen these things undermined and just important to uh, where our schools used to have Bible education in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Now it's got more like um, interfaith religious indoctrination than, than Bible education. So we saw the need to promote home education, pro-life, pro-family. In fact, this coming Tuesday, uh, the 1st of February, will mark the 25th anniversary of the legalization of abortion in South Africa, which is terrible. Two million babies have been killed in the last 25 years in South Africa, mm -hmm. most with taxpayers' money. I mean, two million lives snuffed out like mm -hmm. that in a 25-year period quarter of a century in a country which used to have strong laws protecting babies from abortion. And so mm. this is a cause for repentance. So we've been promoting for the last 25 years National Days of Repentance and Marches for Life to Parliament. And we will be gathering, God willing, on the 1st of February outside the gates of Parliament, uh, laying wreaths and little crosses at the gates of Parliament and making a stand and praying and uh, leading in national repentance. And in fact, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 21 that inspires us there. Uh, in Deuteronomy 21, we read that when the innocent are killed, uh, Deuteronomy 21 verse 1, if anyone is found slain, then the elders and your judges are to go to the gates of the city and uh, uh, to pray and to make sure this is where you cannot bring the guilty to justice for whatever reason, to dissociate from it. And, and verse 8, provide a tone to the Lord for your people. Do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people. So go away, put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. It's so important that we distance ourselves from what our leaders are doing in our name and with our tax money, by the way. Hmm. So silence could be considered to be consent. And hmm. it's so important that we not silence. So for many reasons, as a witness, as an outreach, uh, also for calling for national repentance, we will go to Parliament and at the gates of Parliament we have the service, we sing hymns, we pray the Psalms, we pray the Scriptures, and uh, we we have a repentance prayer going through the Ten Commandments, repenting for the different ways in which we as a nation have been breaking God's Ten Commandments. And, uh, of course, the main focus is the right to life of preborn babies, but that's not the only focus. So... There's different things we can do, and I think it's so important for us to do what we can to mobilize prayer, personally, as families, as congregations. In fact, just this week, we've got a congregation nearby that's invited us to be part of their prayer services every night mm -hmm. of this week with a focus on praying for the nation, praying for the congregation, praying for the communities, praying for the city. And uh, what a nice example it is when you see churches taking seriously that we are called to be a house of prayer for all nations. Mm. And not only are we praying for the nations that are across borders and boundaries in other countries, but there's also nations right here in our very backyard, if you will. They're at our doorstep. What God has done is really brought the nations to us. So even you can go down to your local university and see people from all sorts of closed access countries coming straight to us. And so people who are, have a heart for missions say, well, I can't actually raise the funds and I can't learn a foreign language and go as a missionary. Well, 
you can go down to your local university, you can join a student ministry, you can join Campus Crusade or some of these other ministries, uh, navigators uh, that go and actually reach out to these foreign students right in your city. So it's not only that we're praying for the nations outside our countries, but they've actually come into our countries as well. So there are so many different things we can be praying for as we think of praying to the Lord of the harvest to cast out laborers into the harvest, but also be ready to be the answer to your own prayers. Yes, um, when I was studying at Baptist Theological College, wanting to prepare for missions across the border with Muslims very much my focus, I had the opportunity to go every Monday night with Kareth Niels and hmm. Walter Schwanten of Life Challenge Africa hmm. into a Muslim community, hmm. into the neighborhood where it was 90-something percent Muslim, knocking <laughs> on doors and and learning from a lifelong missionary who'd been committed mm. to Muslim values and how to engage in meaningful relationships and, and ask intelligent questions, answer wisely the different questions the Muslims would ask. And I learned more from those practical outreaches than any classroom could give me because mm. it was on the ground. And also it opened my eyes that, yes, there are Muslims to reach in Saudi Arabia, but, you know, there are Saudi Arabians, people from Eritrea, Pakistan, and Somalia in our own city in Cape Town. And it's it's... it's uh, if that was true a few years ago, it's even more true now. Hmm. The globalization has in many cases brought the mission field to our doorsteps. So no church has an excuse. We should be praying for the nations far away, but we should also be doing what we can to reach their representatives who are not very far away from us. Hmm. Absolutely. Are there any final closing uh, thoughts as we close off our time and uh, call our people to be a house of prayer for the nations? Yes. Uh, let's remember that, uh, our Lord was offended when he saw his temple profaned, polluted, and he saw the need to purge it. And uh, he reminded us of the purpose of the temple. We are to be a house of prayer for all nations, a place of power, a place of praise for the proclamation of God's word. So let's be sure that we're keeping the main thing the main thing and realize that why us in the past God had a temple for his people. Today he has a people for his temple. And 1 Corinthians 6 informs us, your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We do pray that this would encourage you, motivate you, inspire you to commit yourselves, commit your family, commit your church to be a house of prayer for all nations. Good night and God bless. <laughs>